number of texts this evening that we'll be looking at in the sermon, touching at least briefly on each of these. Uh, We start in Genesis, Genesis chapter 6, 5 through 8. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I've made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And over to Romans, first year, chapter 3, verses 9 through 26. Romans 3, starting at verse 9. What then are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know... That whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then over to Romans 5. A couple verses here. Verse 12 and then verses 18 to 20. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act the free gift came to all men resulting in justification of life. For as by the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also 
by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And then our final reading here, 1 John chapter 3, 4-9. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. And you know that He was manifested to take away our sins, and in Him there is no sin. Whoever abides in Him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen Him nor known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. That ends the reading of God's holy word. Now, I'm also going to read um, the selection of catechism questions that we're considering tonight. Uh, there's a number of them. It's questions 13 through 18. And if you'd like to follow along, it's page 870 in the Red Trinity Hymnal. We're taking a chunk here. These are all questions that are about sin, uh, what it is, where it comes from, and how bad it is. Uh, so that's what we're going to be considering tonight. So, uh, question 13. Did our first parents continue in the estate wherein they were created? Answer, our first parents, being left to the freedom of their own will, fell from the estate wherein they were created by sinning against God. Question 14. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. 15. What was the sin whereby our first parents fell from the estate wherein they were created? The sin whereby our first parents fell from the estate wherein they were created was their eating the forbidden fruit. 16. Did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? The covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. Into what estate did the fall bring mankind? The fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. And final question here, question 18. Wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell? Answer, the sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. And that is the catechism questions we'll be looking at this evening. Now, loved ones, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless His Word to us once again. Lord, we know that you as the author of this word and you as the one with all power and authority can make this work uh, plant deep in our hearts. We know that we ourselves are not able to hear your word in faith by our own power. 
So we pray that once again, you do a work of grace in each of us. Speak your word, Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. As we read there in the catechism about the nature of our sin, uh, we were not considering there um, something that has little to do with us, were we? And as we read in, as we read in those scripture passages about sin, uh, about its seriousness, uh, about where it comes from, about, um, about how sinful humanity is, that is not far off, is it, from us, our hearts, our experience. As, as we read these things in Scripture, um, Genesis 6, we read, right? Every intention of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually, right? We are reading there our own hearts. We're looking in a mirror when we look at these things in Scripture and we see just how sinful we are. We are, um, uh, we, are, we are so quick to try to justify ourselves and kind of airbrush the picture, uh, put on a filter, and think we are better than we are and portray ourselves to others as better than we are. But um, sin runs deep in us. Herman Bovink writes this, If anyone could see man as he is, internally and externally, he would discover traits in him which resemble Satan more than they do God. That one, that loved one's is the truth about us, isn't it? There are traits in us which resemble Satan more than they do God. We've been looking in the catechism uh, at uh, how God created man originally, how he made Adam in his image, made him upright, righteous, and holy. But that image of God, while it remains in us, has become defaced by our sin. Right? Uh, sometimes we talk about um, natural man. Our, our human nature is sinful. But that's true now. It wasn't always true. We were made upright and holy and righteous. Right? The image of God is the essence of what it means to be a man or a woman. And yet now this also has come in. Sinfulness is just intertwined with every aspect of who we are. We have been warped by it in every single part of us. Body, soul, mind, heart, every aspect of who we are has been twisted and perverted by our sin. This is the teaching of the T in TULIP, right? That acronym that uh, sums up the five points of Calvinism, so-called total depravity, right? This is what one English Puritan fellow of the name of Ezekiel Coverwell, he, he said this, There is no sin whereof every man hath not the seed in himself which without the Lord's mercy would in time break out. Every human heart so steeped in sin that we all have the seed of every sin in us. The potential for every sin, all wickedness in us. This is the picture that Scripture shows us of ourselves. It's a bleak picture. It's a sorry state we are in. And this is what we're considering tonight. And uh, this is not the good news, is it? Right? This is the, this is the, this is the bad news. This is the, this is the truth that we are dead in our sins, lost in our sin. 
Uh, we're going to ask three questions about sin, and then, and then we'll turn and we, we will end with uh, looking at what our hope is. But these, these three questions, what is sin? Two, where does it come from? Three, how bad is it? What is sin? Where does it come from? How bad is it? And then at the end, what's our hope? So first of all, what, what is sin? What is sin? It's not something that uh, our culture speaks of very much. That's um, a word we don't like in our culture. But uh, what is it? Um, the catechism's answer is very good, right? It's very clear, very precise. It says, sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And in the edition of the Catechism where the divines put in Scripture text to back up what they're saying, they cite 1 John 3, 4, which we read earlier. 1 John 3, 4 says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So that's crystal clear, isn't it? Sin means you broke God's law. Whether he said do it and you didn't, or he said don't do it and you did, you broke his law, that's sin. That's what the Catechism teaches, reflecting there the teaching of 1 John 3, 4. Now, loved ones, as we consider this definition of sin, there's something really important that we need to see in it, and that is um, just how much sin is defined according to who God is. Sin is what sin is because God is who God is. Our culture has a very different understanding of wrongdoing, if they use the term sin at all. Uh, Our culture says something is wrong if you hamper my self-expression and my personal freedom. Something's wrong if you hurt my feelings, right? Because our culture has, that's what we put the highest value on, personal self-expression, personal freedom, and, and our own feelings. It's a very man-centered view of what is best. And so our culture says the worst possible thing you can do is hamper someone else's self-expression and judge someone else for the choices they make. So our culture says that's what wrongdoing is. That's what, that's what uh, is wicked and evil. You see how our culture then defines what's wrong in, in purely human terms, in very man-centered terms. And it's tempting for us to do the same thing. We get caught up in that. But the Word of God is not a man-centered book at all. It's, it's thoroughly God-centered. It's remarkably God-centered, isn't it? And God says in His Word, the greatest good is God. The most important person is God. Everything that exists, exists for Him and in relation to Him and is defined in light of Him. Therefore, sin is not, first of all, when I hurt someone else. But sin is always, first of all, when I rebel against God and break His law. David in Psalm 51 gets this so right. Right? What has he just done? Committed adultery. Perhaps we could even say it was rape. We don't, we don't know the details there, but could have been. Has a man, has, has the husband murdered? Lies to cover it all up. He's committed horrible sins. He's sinned as, as a leader, as the king of his people, right? 
in so many ways. He's broken God's law and he has hurt many people and sinned against many other people. And he needs to go and tell them, I sinned against you. Please forgive me. But in Psalm 51, verse 4, he says, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It's not denying that he also sinned against people, but he is so focused there on how he sinned against God. We sin against each other, and that's always there in our sinning. It's an important thing to ask forgiveness, confess our sin to each other, and ask forgiveness of each other. But first and foremost, sin is always against God. So this is why um, 1 John 3, 4 says that the essence of sin is to break God's law. It's a very God-focused view of our sin. Sin, then, as, as breaking God's law, what is it uh, to get into it, unpack it a little more? It's a rejection of God's authority. It's a rebellion against His right authority. Uh, God has given us a law. He's made it clear. He's written, on, written it on our hearts put it in our consciences. He's revealed His law in the Scriptures. He's summarized it for us in the Ten Commandments. Jesus Himself has also summarized it with two commandments. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven to 39 Jesus sums up the whole law by saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So God has made it clear. He has a law. And He's communicated that law to His people, to the whole world. He has a good, wise, perfect law flowing from His character as good, wise, and perfect. So sin, all, all sin then says, I do not care about God's law. I'm going to do it my way, how I please, according to my own law. Um... That's, that's sin, lawlessness, breaking what God has called us to do or not to do. Uh, we don't like this. We want to do things our own way, uh, be our own authority. Um, my, uh, I have a younger sibling, and when she was, when she was quite little, uh, I don't know, toddler or something, um, she broke Dad's law. She went out and picked flowers from his garden, his flower garden, that she was not to pick. And she knew it. And he was having a talk with her about how those are dad's flowers. You can't pick them without asking. And she said to him, well, I'm God and they're my flowers. Which is just the perfect expression, isn't it? For every human heart against the law of God, he gives us a law and we say, no, no, I'm God. And I'm going to do this my way. I have the authority to live my life the way I want to live it. Lord, I reject your authority. I am going to be the one in charge here. That's what Adam and Eve are doing in the garden. Right? That's the temptation Satan gives them. You eat this, you'll be like God. Make your own rules. Call your own shots. Another one of the Puritan writers says this about sin. Sin goes about to ungod God. Sin goes about to ungod God. That's what it is. The same Puritan writer goes on, sin strives with and fights against 
God. And if its power were as great as its will is wicked, it would not suffer God to be. Sin does not want God to exist. This is the nature and essence of sin, loved ones. Our sin, yours and mine, all mankind. God, the holy, righteous, good, all-wise Creator who made us, sustains us, and tells us the best way for us to live, the way that pleases Him, the way we were made to live, the One who, 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 who has given us His perfect, just, and holy law, we say, no, thank you. We'll do it our own way. And to do that, we scorn Him, we spurn Him, we rebel against Him, we insult Him. That is the nature of our sin. All right, so that's, that's in a nutshell, kind of the essence of what sin is, according to Scripture and the teaching of our catechism. Now, the next question to ask is, well, where does this sin come from? Where does sin come from? That's our second question that we're looking at this evening. Um, are, we all, uh, are we all born at some kind of neutral point? Or even born good, perhaps, and then the evil tendencies and temptations draw us down? Are we born with a natural predisposition to sin? Are we born already sinners? And then how does Adam's sin, that original sin, how does that relate to us? Now, to understand this, um, we need to look at Romans 5. Romans chapter 5. We'll start with verse 12. Verse 12 says this, and uh, it might help you to turn there to Romans 5. Uh, We'll be looking at a few of these verses in a little bit of detail. Um, Paul's logic is pretty tight, so we'll try to to, uh, unpack it. Um, Verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin... And thus death spread to all men because all sinned. How does Paul start? He says, through one man, sin entered the world. Isn't it interesting? He doesn't say through one woman. Didn't Eve sin first? But he says through one man. Right? Eve took the fruit first, took a bite, gave it to her husband, and then he ate. Why does Paul say then, sin entered the world through one man. Well, Paul isn't talking about the first sin necessarily here. Right? If he wanted that, he could have gone and said, sin entered the world through Satan when he fell. Because that happened first. Um, Why does he say through one man? He's not talking about the first sin that was ever committed. That's not what he means when he says sin entered the world. He's talking about how Adam was special. Adam's a covenant head. He's a representative head. Uh, He is uh, the federal head. He represents his wife, Eve. He represents all mankind in himself. If he passes this test that God has given him, he will be blessed with eternal life. And so will everyone else. Because he's the representative. If he doesn't pass the test, if he sins and he falls, then so does everyone else in him. Because he's the representative here. That's why Paul says here, sin entered the world through one man. Because when Adam sinned, it wasn't just a personal thing. It was a public thing that affected everyone. When Adam sinned, it brought all 
humanity into sin. Sin came to Adam, and through Adam, his sin is counted to all of his descendants, except one, which we'll see later. So then Paul says, sin entered the world through one man, and then he goes on, and death through sin. This is the consequence of death. Because of Adam's one sin, death enters the world. Then Paul says, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see what Paul's saying here. He's saying death entered the world through Adam's one sin, and then death spread to all because all sinned. He's saying in Adam's one sin, all sinned. Everyone sinned because he was the head of, this hum- of, of, of all humanity. Um, the old New England primer, the, the blueback primer, right? That uh, the early uh, children of, of New England the, in, the, in the days of the colonies um, learned their ABCs from. Uh, for the letter A, this is how they learned A. It went like this, a little ditty. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. That is a nice little summary, isn't it, of exactly what Paul is saying here. In Adam's one sin, we all sinned. His sin counted to everyone because he's the representative of everyone. Verses 18 and 19 in Romans 5 go on and reinforce this same idea. 18 says, Through one man, that's Adam, through Adam's offense, judgment came to all men. And then verse 19, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Adam's sin, his one sin, makes everyone a sinner. Westminster Shorter Catechism 16 puts it like this, the covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity, for his descendants, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. Loved ones, this is what we call original sin. It's this idea that the sin that Adam committed, that we are guilty of that same sin because he was our covenant head. And that sin is counted to us, imputed to us, and that sin corrupts our nature such that every human being descending from him by ordinary generation is born in sin. Guilty of his sin and corrupted by his sin. This is where our sin comes from. We're all sick with it. This original sin. And we are condemned, just like Adam, to die for it. Third question. This is where sin comes from. How bad is it? You can imagine going to the doctor going to the Lord and, and saying, how bad is it, Lord? And he says, it's bad. It's sin. And that's the diagnosis. It's, it's sin. How far along is it? How far advanced is my case? It's affected everything. It's infected everything. It's corrupted every part of you. There's no part of your body or soul that's not affected by it. It's run rampant. You have no time left at all. You're actually a dead man walking. The whole testimony of Scripture, we, we saw this earlier, bears this out. We'll look at just two texts here, which we read earlier. First is Genesis 6, 5. Then the Lord God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
Now, of course, there we're talking about a specific time and place, right? The, right before the flood happens. And, and wickedness has, has reached a fever pitch. God's common grace is restraining less and less of man's sin. He's giving them over to their sin. And it's not just that they're infected in every part by their sin, but corrupted, completely consumed by their sin. Now, this doesn't mean, though, that while this has a particular bearing on Noah's day and the extreme wickedness of his day, that our situation is at its root any different. This text still bears on us. It's still a fitting description of of all people in all times and all places. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is the brutally honest assessment of your and my heart apart from our Lord Jesus Christ. Then we see also in Romans 3, Paul piles on Scripture after Scripture to make this same point about just how bad our case is, how far advanced sin is. He quotes Scripture after Scripture here in Romans chapter 3. Starting in verse 10, he says, There is none righteous. No, not one. Right? No one is righteous at all. There are no exceptions to this. He says in verse 11, there is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. So not only is no one righteous, no one wants to be righteous. Not only is no one trusting in the Lord, no one wants to trust in the Lord. No one wants God. No one's seeking after Him. He goes on, verse 12, there is none who does good. No, not one. What a, what a testimony to the total failure of mankind apart from Christ. Right? There is no one who does good. That's Scripture's assessment of us apart from Jesus. We think that uh, plenty of people do good things and by God's common grace, yes, there are aspects of things people do that are good, but at their root, every action of the unbeliever is a sin. There is none who does good. We get some specifics then very vividly in verse 13 and following. Verse 13, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Our throats are compared here to open tombs. Nothing but death and decay comes out of our mouths. Nothing living, nothing life-giving. We, are, uh, we have hearts that are like poisoned wells that spew forth poisonous water. Nothing good. Verses 15 to 17 tell us that we're prone to violence and to anger and to hatred, right? Verses, uh, verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways and the way of peace they have not known. We get angry and we are full of bitterness and hatred. And we're violent. And then verse 18 caps it all off. There's no fear of God before their eyes. No respect, no reverence for the great Creator and King. No thanksgiving to Him for everything He's given us. Just rebellion. That is the diagnosis and the prognosis of all our hearts. According to Scripture. It infects and corrupts. Sin infects and corrupts every part of us. And loved ones, we can't make it right. 
any attempt of our own to make it right just increases our sin. Right? Paul writes about this, doesn't he? About how, how he strives to be righteous in his own strength and his own merit, and then he finds out it's all rubbish. It's all trash. Didn't count for anything. Only compounds our guilt because everything we do in ourselves is sinful. We cannot even desire to do good. The larger catechism puts this well. It says, man is utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all that is spiritually good and wholly inclined to all evil and that continually. This is who we are in ourselves. Our only hope then, loved ones, is in the glorious grace and mercy of God. Every sin deserves death and condemnation. Sin entered the world through one man, death through sin. The wages of sin is death. This is what we are owed. And yet, loved ones, God out of His grace and His mercy and His love for us has made a way. The, uh, there's a hymn that puts it like this. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Richard Sibbs, Puritan, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in you. We've just looked at our reflection in the mirror of God's word of our sinfulness. It's a bleak picture. It's a, it's a revolting picture, isn't it? But there's more mercy in Christ. His mercy is more. What has God done? We looked earlier at Romans 5. We read, we read these words. We looked at what we saw there about how in Adam we are dead in sin and rotten in sin. But that's not Paul's main point in Romans 5. That's, that's the first part of his argument. The second part is that we've got a new covenant head. And as surely as in Adam we are all in sin, now in Christ we can all be counted righteous. Christ is the new covenant head. And our Lord Jesus Christ comes as the second Adam and He keeps God's law perfectly. There's no sin at all in Him. Every moment of His life, He's faithful to God and faithful to His law. Everything God tells Him to do, He does. Nothing God forbids does He do. He's perfect. Perfect. And so Paul says, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. This is glorious. God takes rotten sinners like you and me and He makes us righteous because of our Lord Jesus Christ and the righteousness of that one man, our Lord Jesus Christ. Loved ones, if you are trusting in Christ, you are righteous. A sinner in yourself, yes, but in Christ. As pure, as, as forgiven and, and cleansed of sin as you can be. Counted as righteous as Jesus Christ Himself. Counted as worthy of the reward that Jesus merited as Jesus Himself. The reward of eternal life. So loved ones, we've been considering our sin. Don't, uh, don't shy away from your reflection in Scripture of your sinfulness. But also see there Christ your Savior and His perfect righteousness which covers all of it in whom you are justified and accepted and welcomed into the presence of our holy God. So loved ones, 
make this your prayer and your aim, that the Lord would teach you to see just how much in yourself you're a sinner who deserves hell, and then to make you see just how much in Christ you're forgiven and righteous and are on your way to heaven. Pray that you would see, yes, your sin, but then see your all-sufficient Savior. Let's pray together. Lord, we rejoice in our Lord Jesus Christ and His righteousness and in Your glorious grace which has extended this to sinners like us. And when we did not seek after You, You sought after us and, 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 and gave us faith in Him, new life in Him. We pray that we would walk in that. Yes, Lord, we pray that You would show us our hidden faults, even as the psalmist prays. Show us who we are in ourselves. But, O oh Lord, do not do it without also showing us the sufficiency of our Savior and the glories of our Savior so that we might be humbled and so that we might adore Him more and be grateful to Him more and worship Him more and testify to His grace to others more. All this we ask for His dear sake. Amen.